Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Dry Farm Wines. This is the only wine I drink anymore. After researching and finding that many other wines contain added sugar, dyes like ultra red and mega purple, and filtering agents, including fish bladders, egg whites, and some other unsavory ingredients, and things like sawdust to improve the taste. But the dry farm part is important too. What this means is that the grapes are not irrigated. Without the water, they don't get as big or as sweet, yielding higher nutrient and lower alcohol wines naturally. Their wines are lab tested for purity and to make sure that they are free of even trace amounts of pesticides and herbicides. And they're all sourced from small family dry farm vineyards all over the world. I absolutely love their wines and I find them to be less expensive than other high quality wines. And Wellness Mama listeners can get an extra bottle of wine for a penny at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash wine. That's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash wine. This podcast is brought to you by Homebiotic. We all know about our microbiome, and most of us know about our oral microbiome and even our skin microbiome, but it's easy to forget that we live in a microbial environment as well, and that our home environment influences our health too. The overuse of disinfectants and harsh cleansers has led to an overgrowth of less than optimal bacteria in many homes. Things like mold, and pets, and the normal bacteria that comes with a house full of kids running in and outside all day can cause odors and bacterial imbalance in our homes. Those of us with little kids have children sitting on the floor of our homes and interacting with that bacteria on a daily basis. So my solution to this has been Homebiotic. This is a natural probiotic spray for the home that neutralizes odors, germs, and even mold. You can check it out at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash home dash biotic. That's home dash B-I-O-T-I-C. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and today's episode is going to be fascinating. I am here with Thomas DeLauer, who is a renowned nutrition and health author. He's most noted for his personal transformation from a 280-pound corporate executive to being on the covers of health and fitness magazines worldwide. He is noted as one of the world's leading experts on the ketogenic lifestyle and he reaches an average of 15 million people per week with his videos. A lot of those will be linked in the show notes. And he educates on topics like inflammation, ketosis, and intermittent fasting. He resides in California with his wife and their new beautiful baby boy. So Thomas, welcome and thanks for being here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating episode and I can't wait to delve in, but I also can't lead off with an intro like that and not ask you about your story. So how did you transform your own body and your own life so drastically? Yeah, you know, I was living sort of the standard American dream, so to speak. I was chasing all the wrong things. I was chasing money. I was chasing success. Uh, it's important to preface this with the fact that I've been with my wife since high school and she was with me through all different variations of my life, but supported me all the way. But either way, I was in a period of my life where I was just focused on on money, on trying to just grow my career. Again, the you know, quote unquote American dream. And it wasn't until the pressures of business really started to affect me physically. And I realized that, wait a minute, I need to start having an inverse relationship with my health here and business. If I want to be able to do well in what I'm doing, I need to be able to get my health in check. I owned part of an ancillary lab services company. So I was very well versed in the healthcare world. That's what I did. And I had a network of just amazing, amazing physicians that I literally worked with. It was part of my career. And 
it wasn't until a couple of these doctors that were just well-known naturopaths and really started saying, Thomas, you know, something's got to change. You're not exactly a healthy person that's sitting here in the healthcare industry. You can't be doing what you're doing and eating and living the lifestyle that you're living. So that was really my solid call to action where I'm saying, okay, something needs to change. And the frustrating thing, to be honest, Katie, was that I was an athlete before. I knew I had the discipline. I knew I had the structure to be able to stay focused, to get in shape, but it just, I had all my eggs in the wrong basket. So for me, it was a matter of just realigning and understanding that, okay, I need to know why I went down this path. I need to start making some changes. And, uh, and from there, the, the rest is history. I tapped a lot of the resources that I had in terms of amazing physician contacts and amazing doctors that were on the cutting edge and learned some phenomenal things about the ketogenic diet, about fasting, about how inflammation works in the body. And was able to turn my life around pretty darn quickly. I mean, between a about a little under a year and a half, and I dropped close to 100 pounds. Wow, that is really amazing. And from what I've read, your wife also went through some health struggles, probably like in the same time. I don't I don't know the timeline, but um, she had some struggles with, I believe, Lyme disease. Is that right? And when how did that line up with your story? Yeah. So my wife had suffered for quite a long time. She suffered before I was ever uh, mentally overweight, and she suffered actually long after I started to uh, really train, change my body too. But for the most part, yeah, she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which we're all pretty familiar with now because it's talked about a lot, but essentially it's an autoimmune condition that affects your thyroid. And she was starting to struggle with her weight quite a bit. And she's never someone that struggled with her weight, very fit, eats very healthy. And that was the first sign that we had that something was wrong. Well, us having our background, we're like, okay, well, usually an autoimmune condition is just one part of the problem. There's usually other underlying things. So a lot of her symptoms were really adding up with Lyme disease. And they, given where we grew up, we grew up in Northern California. Again, we met in high school. So it was practically a hobby pulling ticks off of each other because up in Northern California, there, we would hike and horseback ride all the time. We're always So there was no surprise that we had probably been exposed to these uh, you know, ticks that were carrying Lyme. So Western blot test later, and we find out that she is uh, definitely Lyme positive, and so begins the treatment. And we're all about doing it however we can in a way that we're going to be utilizing food and utilizing natural resources rather than just going on copious amounts of antibiotics that are going to kill off all her gut bacteria. Um, so it did coincide with my story quite a bit because while I was understanding how inflammation played a huge role in my health and my weight, she was simultaneously understanding how inflammation played a role in her actual disease state. So for us, it was able to combine those. And we were able to realize that, wow, you know, here when we look at our food, not only is food what allows us to look our best, but it truly is what allows us to live a long, healthy life in a non-diseased state. So it really bridged that gap for us. Yeah, that's amazing. So take us through some of the practical aspects of things that you guys did, because I can totally relate to some of these. I have Hashimoto's as well. And um, so I'm, I'm really curious the actual practical process that you went through as you guys were both trying to find your own answers. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's something that's known as the autoimmune paleo protocol, which is pretty common these days. I mean, like we've heard of the whole 30 and things like that, which kind of leveraged some of those. But we took it a step further. What we really want needed to do is we needed to start understanding which foods were affecting us. So for us, it was elimination protocols. It was uh, going very, very, very clean on what we would eat for a set period of time. I mean, we're talking boring clean, but we figured it was a litmus test to start determining and then adding specific foods back into the diet 
to measure different inflammatory responses within the body. So measuring uh, whether we get a rash or whether we get bloated or whether we get headaches and even going so far as testing different antibodies and getting some blood work done. Now, we went to the extreme, but when it comes down to identifying like, okay, well, I had a sensitivity to almonds that I didn't know I had. And once we started understanding inflammation there and the root of it with different foods, it made it a lot easier to be able to start removing certain foods from the diet. Um, that in conjunction with understanding the ketogenic diet and the ketogenic diet as it pertains to inflammation, because when your body's producing ketones, they're very, very anti-inflammatory. So it started off with implementing the right veggies, implementing the right foods and eliminating the inflammatory foods. Then from there, we realized, okay, well, this isn't always the most sustainable lifestyle to only eat these small amounts of foods. And that's how we got turned on to the ketogenic lifestyle and learned more about that. That's fascinating. So were you able, because I've also done the autoimmune protocol and um, I agree, it's super restrictive. And I got to a point where I was just like, I just want spices. Like I want like cumin exactly. and cinnamon and like, totally. um, but were you able to add a lot of those things back in as long as you kept like a low inflammation diet after that? Definitely. Definitely. It's, you know, the thing with an autoimmune paleo type diet is I think people get a little bit hung up on living inside this box of it where they don't let themselves escape from it and you're kind of like held into these like clinches of what you can't eat. And I see it with a lot of people and they start to let it control their lives. And we have to remember, Katie, that like one of the biggest things when it comes down to inflammation is stress. And if we're causing stress in our body because we're stressing out about what we can and can't eat, we're not doing ourselves a whole lot of good. So that's where we started getting to the point where it's okay, how can we reduce inflammation overall so that we don't have these massive undulations and inflammation with every single thing we eat. If we can at least lower the baseline, then we're not going to feel the impact of these inflammatory foods that would ordinarily make us feel terrible. When I'm talking about, like I had an issue with cayenne pepper, you know, like a nightshade, because I didn't realize that cayenne was technically still a nightshade. Every time I'd have cayenne pepper, I was so bloated and so distended and my weight would go up two pounds the next day, just, just from water retention. And I'm like, okay, my body's so sensitive at this point that anytime I go off the rails at all or I go out to eat or you know, they season something at a restaurant differently, I'm back to square one and I feel terrible again. So it was a great way to identify, but I wouldn't say it was a good way to sustain. That makes sense. Okay. So you've mentioned the keto diet and lifestyle in passing, and I get a ton of questions about this. I've written about my experience with it, but I would love to go deeper on this because um, I get, like I said, so many questions, especially questions related to, is it safe for women and how can women do it? And it sounds like your wife has cracked the code. So let's talk on keto and how you guys make it work. Totally. So the first thing I want to say about keto is that most of what you're going to find on the internet leads everyone to believe that it's this totally masculine diet that's just copious amounts of meat and everything like that. And the reality is, is that's the wrong way to do it. The true ketogenic diet should be, you know, three to one, four to one fats to protein. So higher fat, lower protein, you know, and I'm a, I'm a fitness guy that's saying this, you don't need to be eating a lot of protein. Most fitness guys are saying eat a ton of protein, but no, not at all. And so our experience with it has been nothing short of amazing. Um, my wife's instance of Lyme disease has essentially gone to remission. She doesn't have, when we test now, she's not showing up um, with any Lyme. Her Hashimoto, she's off of levothyroxine. She's off of her medication. Uh, for me, I've never felt better. Cognitively, I feel amazing. So women tend to be a little bit concerned about ketosis simply because, well, first of all, the initial barrier is we're led to believe that fat's 
aren't very bad, you know, and we're talking about a diet that's very high fat. So that's barrier number one, but that's both men and women. You know, the common barrier for women is usually the hormonal situation. Uh, is it going to mess with the hormones? We do have to remember that most hormones, or at least the important ones that are related to sexual function and related to our overall senses of well-being, are synthesized by cholesterol and synthesized by fats. And if we're providing our body with the right amounts of fats and adequate fats, then our body can synthesize those. So usually it has a state of balancing out the hormones and balancing out the body, which was definitely the case for my wife. She was uh, you know, suffering with uh, ovarian cyst a lot too, which mellowed out a ton after starting the ketogenic diet. Um, interestingly enough, uh, with her Lyme disease and her Hashimoto, she was told that she'd have a very hard time getting pregnant. Well, we have a you know beautiful three month old baby boy at home and had no problem getting pregnant. Um, and not that we were actively trying before, but the thing is, is that, I mean, it happened very easily. And I've heard a lot of, lot of stories talking about ketosis and how it's improved fertility in women. So that's just kind of the general nutshell. It's just become a lifestyle for us. And we do it applying the anti-inflammatory principles as well. So when we go on a ketogenic diet, we don't have copious amounts of dairy. We don't have a ton of cheese. We do every now and then, but we try to keep it low inflammation. So we feel like if you can indoctrinate these principles that you learn from an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, still know which foods kind of affect you, and then apply ketosis on top of that, you can live a very, very nice, clean, crisp life where you feel on top of your game all the time. Yeah, I think you're so right. And then I think the hormone component is the big hang up for a lot of women. And for a long time, because I experimented with keto for like years ago, but fell into those traps of all the recipes online for keto are like very high dairy or very high fat, but it's all saturated fat. So for me, one of the keys that I found in genetic testing is that I have the FTO gene, which means I don't handle saturated fats really well. Um, but even on a keto diet, I can get plenty of healthy fats from like olives and olive oil and avocados and avocado oil and so many other sources. Um, sardines are a great source, things like that. I just had to learn how to adapt it for me. So I think there's a huge component of that. And I think you're so right that if you aren't just like relying on the dairy and the bacon, um, I'm curious, how do you guys do veggies and how much veggies do you put into your life, like on a very strict keto diet? Cause I think that's one of my soapboxes personally, when I see people talking about the keto diet, I'm like, this is not an all protein, all bacon diet. Like it should really be like largely like non-starchy vegetables, but I'm curious how you guys navigate that. Yeah, you are 100% right. And that's the biggest beef that I have, no pun intended, because it's everyone thinks it's just pure meat and cheese. And no, veggies are a huge, huge, huge component. In fact, they're a big reason why we stay so satiated on a ketogenic diet. Um, always going for the prebiotic fiber type veggies. So I'm talking lots of asparagus, lots of artichoke, lots of cabbage, things like that, because you want to be able to stimulate the body to allow its existing gram-positive bacteria to grow and do its thing. So in order to do that, you need to make sure that you're constantly getting these prebiotic fibers in that are continuing to grow. Um, so veggies are a big, big part of it. So when we look at the ketogenic diet and what happens with the gut flora, some people end up having some issues with their gut flora because certain bacteria respond to fats, certain bacteria respond to starches. And when there aren't starches in the diet, then those bacteria, even ones that are good, can die. So we have to make sure that we're continuing to feed them so that they don't die with a little bit of starch coming from very low starch vegetables that have high prebiotic fiber content. So we eat a ton of asparagus. We eat a ton of artichokes. We even eat, we eat a ton of cabbage, which is cruciferous, which isn't always best for someone that has a heavy uh, thyroid issue. 
but those are really go-tos for us. We also eat a lot of mushrooms. Mushrooms are really, really good. Uh, even though if, you, if they add up, they do have some carbs in them, but terrific prebiotic fiber content in mushrooms. So, you know, big old portobello mushrooms, you know, make a nice you know, chicken sandwich or something with some portobello mushrooms. Um, as a male, I consume a lot of broccoli. My wife doesn't consume as much in the way of cruciferous because, again, the link between cruciferous vegetables and the thyroid is still a little bit of a gray area. So she doesn't push the envelope there. But as a male, I consume tons of cruciferous because of the methane, the indole-3-carbinol, which is very powerful at modulating estrogen within the body. Um, the short answer is probably half of our food intake comes from veggies. That's awesome. And I think no matter what lifestyle or diet anyone's following, like we could all do better on the veggies and learn from that alone. I think that's awesome. Um, do you guys cycle at all? Because I know that's another thing that I've read some. And like for me, I tend to do well when like a couple of days a month, I'll eat more sweet potatoes or something like that. I'm curious, do you guys ever cycle or do you stay in ketosis all the time? Absolutely cycle. And some people are going to you know, hate on me for this because the the devout, devout ketogenic crowd will tell you that you should never cycle on and off. The simple fact is it comes back to that check in the box kind of thing again. You don't have to, just because everyone says this is how you need to do keto doesn't mean that this is how you have to do keto. You have to listen to your body. And my wife and I are both very active and we get to a point where sometimes we feel like we just need to restore carbohydrate. We need to restore the glycogen. Uh, when you're on a ketogenic diet, people tend to think that you burn through all your glycogen, all your carbs that are stored in your muscles and then start using fats. The reality is your body stores those carbohydrates in your muscles and it preserves them pretty darn well while you're in ketosis. So you don't drain your muscle stores of energy for like a month. So the point is, is at the end of a month or so, it's okay to have some carbs, restore the glycogen and let yourself feel good again, just like you did when you first started keto. Because so many people, first couple of weeks of keto, they're like, I feel amazing. And then they just get into this point where they feel stale, they feel achy. And it's because First of all, their fats might not be high enough. But second of all, they may need to just take a couple days and have some carbs. But how we cycle is we actually cycle in longer phases. So I'll go like eight weeks, 10 weeks of very devout ketogenic principles, very, very strict protocol. And then I'll actually go a full month out of keto. So I cycle longer. So I'll go two to three months in keto and then three to four weeks out of keto and give my body a full break because that's just how I like to keto cycle. And again, some people will tell me that that's not living a ketogenic lifestyle. But since for me, most of the period of the year, I am in ketosis, I consider that my lifestyle. Uh, when I do restore carbs, very low glycemic. So I'm talking uh, lentils, green lentils, red lentils, lentil pasta, chickpea pasta, uh, sweet potatoes, all trying to keep the glycemic index under 50 as much as I can. Yeah. And I think if everybody can like remember one thing from what we're saying today, I think what you just said a minute ago is key. Uh, it is so personalized and you can't like, you can take so much great knowledge from people, but really at the end of the day, you're going to have to figure out how that works in your own life. And I think that's maybe where I think all of the dietary dogmas, as they're often called, like that's where they all fall into a problem is when you try to make them your religion. And I've seen that happen to a lot of people. And they, like you said, they feel great for a while, but by following a specific protocol, and then they don't as well. And they're not willing to adapt it because they really want to cling on to that. So I think I really do think and hope that the future of a lot of the natural health movement is going to be in personalization and figuring out the variation that works for individuals. And I love that you said that. So thanks for bringing that up. I'm also curious if you guys worked in, I know we talked a little before we started talking on, on the air, but about fasting. So I'm curious if fasting played into that at all, because that's something I've been experimenting with the last few months and loving, but I'm curious your experience. I, yeah, I'm personally very seasoned with fasting. I am a huge proponent of it, both uh, dry fasting, water fasting, intermittent fasting. 
I love playing around with it because I just love how I feel. Um, Amber is not real big on fasting. So, and this is perfect, right? To your point is some people respond very, very well to fasting and some people just don't, it just doesn't jive with them. Um, I know plenty of women that have just crazy success with intermittent fasting and, uh, Amber just, she likes to live more of the ketogenic lifestyle. So she fasting just isn't for her. Um, but she understands the benefits of it. So for me, I've become very well versed in it because it's it's ten, how I tend to live. I like to intermittent fast at least three days per week. I use fasting as a catalyst and sort of an auxiliary component to an already successful diet. Uh, if your body is already thriving on what you're eating, then by periodically throwing fasting into the mix, it's just catapulting you into an entirely different level. I'm not a fan of fasting every day, uh, you know, doing these intermittent fasts like 16-8 strategy every single day. I think that's... Uh, that's setting yourself up to really get bored of it and also potentially lower your basal metabolic rate. But I love the idea of implementing it a couple days per week and getting maybe one 24 hour fast in per week at least, and really just allowing your body to benefit from the that cell recycling, that autophagy that occurs. Um, so huge, huge advocate of fasting here. Well, and I'd love to address a little bit if you don't mind, because I know I'm going to get the objections from listeners of like, your body's not made to go without food. And especially you mentioned dry fasting. I hear a lot, you know, like your body's not made to ever go without water. And there are people who truly think you should eat like six meals a day and be drinking all the time. So um, I'm curious, can you like expound on your research a little bit and why you feel comfortable both with fasting and dry fasting? Yeah, totally. So when it comes down to just traditional fasting in the first place, the first thing I want to say is we have to look at kind of the Pavlovian response that we've been conditioned to fall into you know, from the time that we are small children, we're led to believe that when the get up in the morning, we eat and then the school bell rings and it's lunchtime or it's recess and it's time for a snack and the school bell rings and it's time to eat again all the way down to the quote unquote dinner bell. We literally have just conditioned ourselves from a mental aspect to just think that we need to be eating multiple times per day when in reality we can be making ourselves more metabolically inefficient. So I encourage people to look at it slightly different where if you are training your body to eat all the time or every few hours, then your cells are not becoming adapted to being able to survive on their own. We have a very adaptive body. Our body is very capable of adapting to many different things. That's what makes it so unique and, and so powerful. So if we go periods of time where we're fasting, we're putting ourselves in this tremendous situation where our cells become adapted to being more efficient at energy utilization. They, they get better at it. The other thing is, our body has a lot of natural stores of fat that it can pull from. And that fat is very, very calorically dense. And the whole idea is your body takes these fats and turns them into ketone bodies so that you have energy, so that you do feel well. Now, initially, when someone first starts to fast, they can find that you know they, they have to modulate a little bit because their, their blood sugar is kind of uh, up and down a little bit because they're just not used to it. But that literally is something that goes away after one or two days of practicing fasting. So when it comes down to the constant stress on the body, every time that we eat, our pancreas has to secrete insulin. And that insulin is really hard on our bodies. Our bodies aren't designed to be actually taking in this constant insulin surge. And it's taxing on the pancreas. And there have even been you know, thought leaders in the industry that have shown that if we could fast or if we could limit our food intake that our cells would live a lot longer and consequently we would live a lot longer. Some of the cultures, Hindu cultures and some of these Asian cultures that have periods of fasting incorporated into their lifestyles, they have the longest life expectancies. And you can't negate that. 
these are people and, and some of these you know indian cultures go weeks of fasting that's a little bit extreme but still they have some of the highest life expectancies so it definitely isn't a matter of is it healthy or unhealthy it's more just a matter of how you've mentally framed yourself to be able to handle that um and being that i talk about fasting on the internet a lot you know i've heard it all i've had a lot of people tell me that it's uh, we're not designed to do that and you just have to test it for yourself because one thing's for certain, you're not going to waste away. Your muscles aren't just going to surrender and, and you're not just going to lose all your muscle. The very worst case scenario is you're going to lose some fat and you might feel a little bit, a little bit weak in your first time fasting. But, and I'm, I'm, I get behind fasting 100%. Yeah, definitely. Me too. It's, as, as I said, it's something I've been experimenting with. I'm actually on day two of a fast right now. It'll be a five to seven day water fast. Um, and I had that same thing, all those things that you read and hear and, you know, people with all their cautions about you're going to downregulate your metabolism and you're going to ruin all your blood levels. And um, like, it sounds like you are too. I'm very much a researcher. So I, the first few times I fasted, I tested my blood levels before and after, and I tested my morning blood glucose and like various times throughout the day. And I tested ketones and I trusted breath acetone. And certainly for me, at least it definitely was a very positive thing. And it like my morning, my fasting blood glucose went down 10 points and stayed that way after fasting. And I mean, it's been really drastic, but I think you're absolutely right that it doesn't work for everyone, but it's worth experimenting with for everyone for sure. Um, and there's so much cool research on how your body goes into autophagy, which means it's going to kill off bad cells and how you get, I think it's even stem cells on like day three to five of fasting, you get an infusion of stem cells. Have you seen any other information on that? You've probably talked about it already. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, particularly in the brain, which is really crazy is, you know, uh, at the brain, you know, brain stem cells actually showing up. That's powerful. So when we're talking about very powerful states of you know, neurogenesis and I want to, uh, you touched on something that I want to mention about downregulating down the metabolism because, uh, so I'm going to touch on that for a second because I know that's a huge obstacle for a lot of women is they think that their their T3 function, their thyroid function is going to go down. So there are studies, um, I can send them to you so you can put them in the show notes because I, I forget the publication right offhand, but essentially what they found was that your T3 levels while you are fasting, which is your bioactive, your form of thyroid, that thyroid hormone that is present at that point in time. Yes, it does go down while you're fasting, and that scares people, freaks people out. But what they found doesn't change is that your thyroid-stimulating hormone and your T4 does not change, and those are the precursors to your thyroid. So with those not changing, it goes to show us that any downregulation of the thyroid is only temporary literally during your fasted state. Other than that, you're, you're golden. That makes perfect sense. And that probably also is why I've noticed, and a lot of people seem to notice this being cold on the first few days of a fast. But if your T3 is down, that would make sense that you would feel more cold. So that's a really good point. I would love if you could send those. I'll make sure they're in the show notes as well. Totally. Awesome. So let's talk inflammation more in depth because I feel like that seems like it was a huge part of your story and something that's a huge focus for your research now. And I know I've seen a lot of studies about how inflammation plays a part in pretty much every disease in some way. Um, but to start, let's talk about what exactly is inflammation and why are we seeing more of it right now? Yeah, I think the reason we're seeing more of it now is is mainly just because there's just more awareness online, period. I think, um, you know, with the advent of like the Whole30 and some of these, some of these other publications that talk about it, we're just, it's more top of mind. The simplest way that I can explain inflammation is if you've ever bumped your elbow or you bumped your knee or you've gotten a scrape or a bee sting, you know, it gets all swollen. That swelling is acute inflammation, which means that it is an inflammation that is responding to a given stimuli. 
Now we have inflammation that's called chronic inflammation. This chronic inflammation is inflammation that is not necessarily responding to any stimuli. It's just constantly there. So if you can visualize the swelling and the redness of a bee sting happening on each microscopic cell within a given area of your body, that's exactly what inflammation is. And if you think about it, just quite logically, when a cell is inflamed like that, it makes it so nutrients can't get into the cell as well because there's all this swelling. The cells can't communicate as well because they have a layer that makes it so they can't, uh, the neurons can't connect and they can't actually have the cell fluidity that we need to be able to communicate. And it can cause a lot of problems. It basically makes it so that your immune system is constantly on high alert. It's like inside your body, you have a low state of the flu going on all the time whenever you have instances of inflammation. So that's why people tend to get that brain fog or just that chronic fatigue. A lot of times it's just inflammation doing its thing on such a low scale that you're not actively thinking about it. But when you stop and you reflect, you're like, wow. I have been really foggy. I haven't been myself. And it's usually just chronic inflammation, just running amok in your body, like as if your body was fighting off the flu. That makes perfect sense. So then um, I'm assuming that things like the ketogenic lifestyle and fasting both help reduce inflammation. But what are some of the other ways that you guys have dealt with inflammation and reduced it? Because obviously with Lyme disease, that's also a huge problem, um, having the excess inflammation. So how else did you guys address that? Yeah. So one of the big things that we've implemented is, you know, studies have shown that literally just small amounts of fasted cardio, like first thing in the morning, if, even if you can't fast like for an extended period of time, but if you get up and you do 10 minutes of easy fasted cardio, I mean going for a walk in a fasted state, it has been shown to, to reduce interleukin-6, which is an inflammatory marker or precursor, uh, quite dramatically. So I mean, that's one thing that we've noticed made a huge difference, just trying to give some tangible aspects for the listeners, so things that they can try. Um, so very, very powerful there. Reducing sugar intake. Sugar is so inflammatory. And even fructose is very inflammatory in, in large amounts. And that's the sugar that comes from fruit. We're not designed to be eating a lot of fruit. We're designed to be eating amounts that would naturally be growing at that point in time in our respective regions. Um, so cutting down those sugars really brings things down a lot, particularly with brain inflammation. Um, digestive inflammation is a very, very big one. So reducing meat consumption quite a bit. Now, I'm not, I'm not a vegan. I don't play one on TV and I don't, I don't ever claim to be one, but I do advocate for a much lower protein diet. And I feel like if you eat just enough protein to really sustain the right function and just enough protein to build muscle, if that's what you want to do, then you know, that is perfect. So reducing sort of the carbon footprint on our body because too much meat is very, very hard as far as inflammation goes. Um, believe it or not, it's some of the foods that we think are healthy that are even inflammatory. Uh, an example is large amounts of nuts. Sure, the fats are great, but mechanically, they're very hard to digest. First, you got to chew them really, really well and the body has to break them down. But they also contain things called phytates, phytic acid, which is really hard for the body to break down um, it's, it's kind of funny, but if you ever think about, you know, you're walking in the woods and you were to look down and you were to see some animal scat on the ground, you might see that there's some nuts and seeds already in the animal scat. Well, that's simply because the phytic acid that is in seeds is designed to make sure that like nuts don't fully break down and it's so that they can germinate so that the nuts can pass through and get planted and the seeds can get planted when an animal passes them and they can grow a new tree. So it's actually a biological component of nuts and seeds to have this phytic acid in it where it restricts our body from fully breaking them down, especially if the skin is present. So things like that, like reducing the nut intakes so that we're not eating so much. And on a ketogenic diet, we have a tendency to eat a lot of cashews, eat a lot of almonds. 
Um, but actually modulating that a little bit more and going with more of the oils and stuff like that. Uh, so really understanding that was very, very important. But sugar was the biggest one, but also omega-3s. Omega-3s huge, especially getting it from like a docosahexaenoic source, DHA versus this traditional EPA, which is the kind of stuff you'll see just on the shelves. Um, Omega-3s are very, very powerful, and we're supposed to have a one-to-one -one ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s in the body. The standard American diet is 18 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3. So we're way, way, way off. So the first order of business is getting out sugar. The second order of business is increasing our fat, uh, fat intake by way of these omegas so that we can get that baseline back to one-to-one. Because omega-6s are exceptionally inflammatory, and if our body's constantly having to fight this inflammation from those omega-6s, excuse me, we're never going to get ourselves to the place we need to be to start finding homeostasis. That makes sense. So you've mentioned a couple times, like, pr eat protein but not too much protein. So what does that actually practically look like both for you and your wife on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, like, how much protein do you actually consume? Yeah, so I'm I'm about 180 pounds, so I consume less than 100 grams of protein. So I'm I'm about a half a gram per pound of body weight. And again, mind you, I'm a relatively heavily muscled guy, so I my protein requirements are a little bit higher. My wife probably only consumes 50 at most. She doesn't consume much. She 50 to 70, you know. So it's she just doesn't need to be having that much, especially on a ketogenic diet, because proteins can get converted into sugar relatively easy in the body. So you want to be a little bit lower on protein and higher in fats. Um, the general rule they say is about 0 0.6 per kilogram of body weight. Uh, so if you take your weight and you divide it by 2.2 and you get yourself in, in kilograms, then you are looking at, you know, between 0 0.6 to 0 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's what's been tried and tested the most. Got it. That's really helpful. So um, also I believe if, from what I've read, you used um, like some turmeric-based compounds as part of reducing inflammation. Is that, am I remembering that right? And if so, can you talk about it? Yeah, totally. So the, yeah, it's actually as far as compounds go, the combination of turmeric curcumin and docosahexaenoic acid, so fish oil or, or an alcohol oil in this case, that combination is exceptionally lethal in terms of just modulating inflammation. I got to be careful how I say that lethal in a good way, meaning it's going to kill off inflammation. So curcumin, there are literally over 12,000 studies, peer-reviewed scholarly articles directly linking curcumin to reduction of inflammation. And we're talking about major things like nuclear factor kappa B, which is a huge inflammatory marker in the body. Huge reductions in C-reactive protein, another major biomarker. I mean, just countless, literally over 12,000. And it's just growing immensely. By And then all the studies of curcumin and cancer research, too, and being able to shrink, uh, shrink certain cancer cells. But as far as inflammation goes, there is no better natural compound. There was even a study that found that curcumin was more powerful at reducing inflammation as a uh, COX-1 inhibitor than we have these uh, COX-1 inhibitor basically is doing the same thing that aspirin or uh, anti-inflammatory drug does. But studies have shown that curcumin is even more powerful than an anti-inflammatory or an aspirin at reducing localized inflammation. That right there is so powerful. And for me, having weighed 280 pounds before, my joints were already suffering at a very young age. So curcumin was just a huge thing for me to be able to control systemic inflammation, but also the joint inflammation so that I could feel good again. Wow, that's really drastic. I'm curious because a lot of the stuff I've seen, um, at least articles online, seem to say you should take turmeric or curcumin with black pepper. 
Um, and the one, we'll link to the one that you use. It'll be in the show notes. And I think there's even a, a discount for listeners. But I noticed it doesn't have black pepper. And I'm curious why. Yeah. So the thing with black pepper, so or you know, bioperine as its trademark name, a lot of times companies will use that. Black pepper, it's not a bad thing, but we have to realize what black pepper is doing. So curcumin is the bioactive component of turmeric. So we actually have a couple stages. So we start with turmeric. We've got the root, right? And then we break it down into the standardized bioavailable extract, which is curcumin, which is what's actually doing most of the work. Well, curcumin is a powerful compound that has to be broken down by the liver. It has to be somewhat methylated. It has to go through this process in the liver where it breaks it down. Well, it's very hard to break down. So a lot of times the liver just says, forget it, and it passes on through uh, through the urine and excrete it out. But when you have black pepper in the mix, black pepper disarms the liver. So it disarms certain compounds within the liver so that medications can be absorbed. When we look at it with curcumin, it does the same thing. It shuts off the liver temporarily so that the curcumin can be absorbed. But when you really think about it and how it's set up like that, why on earth do we want to ever turn off our liver? <laughs> it's, you know, we become very susceptible to all kinds of other things at that point in time. So if you take any other medications or anything like that, and you're taking black pepper extract or bioparine along with your turmeric curcumin, well, you just open yourself up to being dramatically more sensitive to whatever medication you're taking, dramatically more sensitive to the negative effects of alcohol or any other compound or even, you know, recreational drug or whatever could be in your body. So very, very dangerous, but it's also just disarming the liver to be able to synthesize and process different oxidative uh, stressors in the body. So it turns off your liver. Now, it doesn't literally turn the whole liver off, but it deactivates certain components so that different things can be absorbed. So I'm a huge fan of finding turmeric curcumin that has been utilized or processed in a way where it can be metabolized without having to go through that particular area of the liver. Or if it can, it's already nanoparticulated and brought, brought down small enough that it can be utilized. Um, so that's where the, the specific kind that I use. And I actually am on the scientific advisory board. So I've personally worked with some of the research that's been done on this mycelization. And we can get into the details of how that actually works. But essentially, you want to be very, very careful with the black pepper because it can make it so that you're much more sensitive to other things in your life. That's fascinating and really good to know. Um, can you explain in depth what you mean by that? I think you just said mycelation. Is that right? Um, what, is that, what does that mean? Yeah. So when we eat fats, well, first of all, our bodies are predominantly water. So when we eat fats, I want you to think of what happens if you were to put a bunch of olive oil in a cup of water. It's going to bubble up. It's going to beat up and it's not going to break down. Fats need to be emulsified, meaning they need to combine with different enzymes to actually turn them into something that can be soluble in water. So whenever we consume fats, they are broken down and our body puts them through a system and a process, part of which is re releasing bile from the gallbladder and parts of the liver. And that gallbladder turns this fat into a micelle or basically it mycelizes the fats. Micelles are very, 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 very small nanoparticles that are small enough to cross through the intestinal tract to get things from the intestines into the bloodstream. Well, they're little teeny carriers for fat. So what they do is take the fat, emulsify it, make it digestible, put it inside this microscopic school bus. The school bus drives through the intestinal tract into the bloodstream, and voila, you have fat in the bloodstream ready to be utilized for fuel. So a really cool thing. 
Now, if you take turmeric or you take curcumin and you can scientifically find a way to nanoparticulate it and make it small enough that you can encapsulate it in a micelle, we're talking about very, very finite process here, like very, very, very small little teeny particles that you're putting curcumin inside of. Well, you just got yourself a delivery system for that curcumin where it's broken down small enough encapsulated in a microscopic piece of fat basically that goes right through your body right through or not right through your body excuse me right through your intestinal tract and your bloodstream ready to be utilized by a cell and then a my cell connects with a regular cell in your body and opens up the gateway so that the nutrient can get directly into the cell so you've basically bypassed the extra process of the liver and this is a uh, very unique function, a patented function that we use with with this particular strain of or kind of curcumin. So really, really powerful in how it works, especially, um, and, and just for those that are wondering, the fat that is added to it is that omega-3, that DHA coming from an algal source. Uh, so it's not derived from fish, it's derived from algae. The reason fish have a high omega-3 content isn't because they're naturally born with high amounts of omega-3, it's because they eat the algae that has high amounts of omega-3. So rather than go to the fish, let's go straight to the source and use the algal oil and get the true high-quality omega-3 so that we can combine this with the curcumin in a mycelized form. And we've got this ultimate inflammation-reducing compound. That's really cool. And it would seem like, because I know a lot of um, different cultures have maybe like cultural recipes that include turmeric and a healthy form of fat. Like I'm thinking off the top of my head, like the turmeric tea or golden milk is popular in several cultures. But so this would be much more effective than that because that process has already happened and is now at a nano level versus just mixing like a fat with turmeric. Am I understanding correctly? You you are so dead on. Yep. And uh, cool thing is I've actually done videos on because this particular, you know, we'll just call it a nano fat has to be in a liquid form. It's it's suspended in a liquid form because it can't be just put in a capsule because it's that unique. Uh, but it also, it tastes really good. So like I make golden milk with it. I make all kinds of recipes with it. So, you know, I will take my uh, coconut milk and I will add this Pure Thrive to it. This is, that's what the, the product name is. So I'll add this curcumin to it and make my own golden milk because that way I've already got the fats. I've already got the fats also from the coconut milk, but then I've got it from the, from the product itself too. So it's it's really cool. So because because golden milk is amazing. The the downside is you're just not always absorbing what you're getting out of it. You're you're going to absorb a little bit. It's still there's still some amazing benefits to drinking the uh, straight turmeric to begin with because there's turmeric and there's curcumin. Curcumin is contained within turmeric, but standardized turmeric extract, the actual benefit of the root itself, is still very powerful. And you're going to get that benefit from just making some good old fashioned golden milk. But um, yeah, one of my favorite things is to combine with all kinds of things, coconut, coconut ice cream, coconut milk, coconut yogurt, um, you know, do all kinds of things and get creative with your turmeric. Interesting. And since the omega, the DHA comes from an algae form, I would guess, is that, does that make it more stable? Cause there's been some stuff coming out lately about, um, like fish based omega threes and how they can go easily rancid if they're not actually in the fish itself. And so I tend to stick to sardines and like the actual fish form to get that. But with the algae form, you would kind of bypass that problem as well, right? Yep. Yeah. That's, I've seen some of that stuff recently too. And it's really scary because like I used to be a huge consumer of fish oil and, uh, almost, you know, in a little bit of an uneducated sense, I was just knew it was good and was consuming a lot of it. And, uh, when it comes back to like fats that are unstable and let's first off say that omega threes are amazing, but they are an unstable fat. Okay. What, what that means is that they, they go bad very easily. They're very delicate. You know, they're a delicate little flower that is beautiful and does amazing things. But if you look at it wrong, it's going to wilt. And that's uh, the price you pay to get good quality food sometimes. But 
with omega-3s, if they go rancid, if they go bad, they become toxic in the body. And not like this make you sick. Well, they can definitely make you sick, but you don't even realize they're rancid. They just become a bad fat. It goes through a process called lipid peroxidation, where it turns into a, an oxidized fat. When fat combines with oxygen, it turns bad and the body can't utilize it. In fact, it actually causes more harm than good. So a lot of the fish oil, I'd probably say 80% of the fish oils out there are very, very dangerous to take if you're taking a lot of them. And algal oil is much more stable, much more sustainable, and doesn't have that issue. You're not going to have, it's still an unsaturated fat, that's a polyunsaturated fat. So it's still unstable compared to say coconut oil, you know, but it's coconut oil doesn't have the omega threes that, that it does. So I would always recommend no matter what, any omega that you get, whether it's fish oil or alcohol oil, you should probably refrigerate it whenever you can, just because it's going to help keep it stable. Yeah, good advice. And I think I'm glad that you've also seen the research on the omega threes from fish sources. I'm glad that's coming out. And I'm glad that people are understanding it. And like, I, I think like you would probably say as well, it's always good to go to food sources for fish anyway. And I, I'm assuming do you guys eat quite a bit of seafood as part of your keto diet? Um, I do. Amber's not a big seafood person. She's just never has been. Um, so but I, I do I consume so I, I go small, small fish whenever I can. So sardines, I go mackerel, I go the smaller the fish, the better. Um, it's lower down the food chain, less, less buildup. You want ones that have a short, a short life cycle. So they don't have a lot of time in the ocean absorbing heavy metals and everything like that, uh, whenever you can, but I don't expect people to just go around eating algae. So, you know, you want to get the closest thing next to that, you know, the small fish that are feeding on the algae. Uh, it's the kind of a line of a diminishing return with each time you go up with a predatory fish, you're going up further down the line. So you start with the algae, what eats the algae? Okay. Some microscopic organisms, but then a lot of fish munch on the algae. And then what munches on the fish? Well, the next size up fish, and then the next size up fish, and then the next size up fish. And then you've got these big predatory fish, uh, swordfish, things like that. Well, what do you know? They're usually the lowest omega-3 content. They're also usually the uh, the highest in heavy metals. So you, you want to keep it as low down the food chain as you possibly can. Um, and it really helps out a lot. In fact, I'm actually... Um, I'm, I'm speaking at South by South, South by Southwest in Austin, uh, about this, about, literally about algal oil because it's becoming so big and it's literally to your point about how fish is fish oil is becoming a little bit more known to be a little bit more dangerous now. So it's definitely a big trending topic. I mean, to the point where I'm, I'm speaking about it. So that's awesome. This podcast is brought to you by Dry Farm Wines. This is the only wine I drink anymore. After researching and finding that many other wines contain added sugar, dyes like ultra red and mega purple, and filtering agents, including fish bladders, egg whites, and some other unsavory ingredients, and things like sawdust to improve the taste. But the dry farm part is important too. What this means is that the grapes are not irrigated. Without the water, they don't get as big or as sweet yielding higher nutrient and lower alcohol wines naturally. Their wines are lab tested for purity and to make sure that they are free of even trace amounts of pesticides and herbicides. And they're all sourced from small family dry farm vineyards all over the world. I absolutely love their wines and I find them to be less expensive than other high quality wines. And Wellness Mama listeners can get an extra bottle of wine for a penny at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash wine. That's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash wine. This podcast is brought to you by Homebiotic. We all know about our microbiome and most of us know about our oral microbiome and even our skin microbiome, but it's easy to forget that we live in a microbial environment as well and that our home environment influences our health too. 
The overuse of disinfectants and harsh cleansers has led to an overgrowth of less than optimal bacteria in many homes. Things like mold, pets, and the normal bacteria that comes with a house full of kids running in and outside all day can cause odors and bacterial imbalance in our homes. Those of us with little kids have children sitting on the floor of our homes and interacting with that bacteria on a daily basis. So my solution to this has been homebiotic. This is a natural probiotic spray for the home that neutralizes odors, germs, and even mold. You can check it out at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash home dash biotic. That's home dash B-I-O-T-I-C. Well, and I think for a lot of people listening, they're definitely probably intrigued by a lot of the things that you do and by your amazing transformation and your wife's healing story as well. So I'm going to ask you to kind of take us through a typical day, but uh, in a self-serving way, because I know a lot of people are going to want to know like specifically, what exactly do you do? How do you implement it? And how does it look on a practical daily level? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're getting the, uh, getting the good stuff here because I've been so many people on my YouTube channel, my Facebook page that always ask me to go through a day in the life, but I always kind of reserve it for special circumstances. So this is definitely one of those uh, special circumstances being on your podcast. So yeah, a little bit of, you know, I'll, I'll walk through my day because I can speak for myself and then I can talk a little bit more about sort of, uh, you know, Amber's day too. So, you know, I wake up, I'm always an early to bed, early to rise kind of person anyway. It's just how I'm wired. So I get up, I start my day with apple cider vinegar, which a lot of people know I'm a very big fan of. So I have some apple cider vinegar, a little bit of lemon, and I'm just going to go ahead and talk about a regular keto day because a fasting day is kind of boring because wouldn't want to hear about what I don't eat. Then I go and I go, I go to the gym and I usually do some kind of short, easy, high intensity workout, or I do some fasted cardio first and then go ahead and do some kind of 20 to 30 minute hit style workout. I'm not a big fan of spending a lot of time in the gym. I just go in, get it done. And then I come home and I wait about an hour before I ever eat breakfast. So I let the benefits of the workout sort of set in. And it usually works out great because I get up, I go to the gym nice and early, and then I come home, I watch the kiddo while Amber goes to the gym. And so it works out great. So then when she comes home, a lot of times we'll have breakfast together. So what I will usually do is I'll, that's exactly when I'll have some of my turmeric right then and there is when I've recovered from you know 45 minutes to an hour after the workout, perfect time to start quelling some inflammation in the body then I usually use some collagen protein. So I like using collagen protein with a little bit of coconut milk or almond milk if it doesn't have carrageenan in it. Uh, so huge fan of that. Keeping it relatively low calorie with breakfast and then adding a couple tablespoons of coconut oil to the shake and shaking it up or just eating the coconut oil separate. I have no problem just straight up consuming coconut oil because I actually like the taste of it. Um, collagen is very important on a ketogenic diet because if your body is going to start breaking down proteins in your body, it usually tends to break them down from your soft tissue, like your connective tissue first. So I always try to restore collagen whenever I can. So I, a pretty small breakfast, especially considering, you know, that I'm 180 pounds and then I move on into lunch. I, I go to the office and I sip on matcha green tea all morning. I have matcha green tea and I usually add MCT powder to it. Um, MCT oil, if you try to add it to tea, it just doesn't mix very well. So I'm a huge fan of using MCT powder. Just MCTs are medium chain triglycerides. They're basically the powerful fat that is in coconut oil that's been extracted into a powder form. So I put that with my matcha, sip on that throughout the morning, uh, revs my brain up really good. Then I go home and I will usually have uh, for lunch, usually like three to four ounces of some grass-fed bison. So a higher omega-3 content because it's been grass-fed and bison is just a naturally higher omega-3 content. And if it's a keto day, which uh, again it is, I would usually have some uh, big old flat of asparagus. So I'll usually like Trader Joe's has these awesome 
bags that are just like steam uh, serving sizes that you can either microwave or you can steam you know, take out and steam. I usually take them out and steam them. So right then and there, I'm usually having, this sounds crazy, but like 20 to 25 stalks of asparagus because I just love that asparagus. So the majority of my carbs of the day do come from that asparagus. And I melt a couple tablespoons of coconut oil on that and feeling really, really good. And then maybe I'll have a tablespoon of macadamia nut butter just to get my fats up a little bit higher. Then come back to the office. Um, usually don't have any appetite until dinner, if even that, because the, the high fat content satiates me so much. And that's when we usually, Amber's really awesome about just creating, coming up with these awesome ketogenic recipes. And so we usually have something creative, cauliflower crust pizza, where we're you know, making it with cauliflower crust and a tiny bit of coconut flour and almond flour um, and putting almond cheese on it. Where, again, we try to keep dairy low. So almond cheese, some marinara, you know, get creative with it, get some really good quality uh, chorizo or anything like that just to make the pizza taste good and still low meat content with lower protein, higher fat. Then this is my, this is my staple every night. It's like, I cannot sleep unless I have something that I call my moo's Amber makes fun of me. Cause it's like my moo sippy cup. It's like, I have to have it before I go to bed. And what it is, is it's, it's either almond milk or coconut milk that I warm up. And then I add about two to three tablespoons of good high fat coconut cream. And then I add a couple of stevia, a couple drops of stevia, and then some raw cacao powder and mix that up with like a little magic bullet and it froths up and it is a ketogenic, low carb, hot chocolate that I practically can't live without. I'm like a five-year-old and that just puts me right to sleep. And then I have a little bit more of my curcumin gold before I go to bed because I try to keep inflammation down low while I'm sleeping so my body can fight. And that is my day in a nutshell in terms of how I eat and my ketogenic lifestyle, at least abbreviated. Nice. Has that changed at all since having a baby? Because I know that can like throw a monkey wrench into a lot of scheduling things for a lot of people. Are you guys still maintaining a pretty good schedule even with a newborn? It's definitely more of a challenge. But uh, again, I think we have a little bit of an upper hand because it's it's our lifestyle and we're in the public eye a lot with what we do. So we have a, we have extrinsic motivation to make sure that we don't go off the rails. I mean, we know that we motivate a lot of people. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge shout out and testament to how awesome my fan base is and our fan base is just because it's really holding us to the grindstone with it. Uh, so I will be the first to say that, yeah, there are a lot of times now sleep deprived, just tired, you know, you hold, holding a baby in one hand. It's not always easy to just go make a super healthy meal. It's a lot easier to just want to grab a handful of macadamia nuts or a handful of cashews and eat the things that might just be the snack. It's a lot easier to snack. I guess I should just say that it's a lot easier to just graze. And although grazing can be okay, it's a very easy for your calories to add up when you graze. And I feel like that's why, um, I can speak, let me at least speak for, for men. I feel like that's why so many men end up getting the quote unquote dad bod is they just, they just graze and they don't keep track of their calories anymore. It's not like they're just binging on bad food. I think they're just losing track. So, um, fortunately little Tommy is finally getting to the age now where he, we're in kind of the sweet spot, you know, he's three months, three and a half months. And he's like getting to the point where he's not as needy of a newborn, but he's not to the point where he's rambunctious and running around yet. So we're kind of in the sweet spot right now, um, where when we set him down, <laughs> he stays there so we can actually cook again and we can get our schedules going. But, um, sardines have become a good friend of mine because they're easy. I can open them up with one hand uh, pretty easily. Macadamia nuts, as always. Uh, macadamia nut butter has become a good friend. And again, uh, collagen protein has just been something that's just really easy for me to just whip together if I'm just in a hurry. So yeah, it's definitely changed. Not as much structure to the meals, but it's getting better. 
Yeah, I feel your pain for sure. We have six and um, sardines are a go-to for me and anchovies as well. I love anchovies, but it does get harder. You're so right. So I want to make sure we mention, I think we forgot to mention earlier that you guys are giving a 10% discount on Pure Thrive to anybody listening. Um, and that's at purethrive.com forward slash wellness mama for anybody who wants to check it out. And of course that will be in the show notes as well. Um, and I have a feeling you might include it in your answer, but I'm curious to ask, and I always ask at the end, um, for anyone listening who maybe seems a little overwhelmed by all the information and, but they want to jump in, what, where would you have them start? Where's the one to two baby steps you'd give them to begin? Well, let me answer your question just with a question, just so I make sure I'm giving the right answer. You talk about in general or the ketogenic lifestyle, or is there something particular? Because I can, I have a couple different directions I could go with either one. Um, you can interpret however you want, however, like anything we've talked about. Okay. So first, the first thing that I would say is everything you hear about a given diet, if they tell you that it's the only way to go, run the opposite direction because you need to do what works for you. So my first, uh, first bit of advice would be to do your research from unbiased sources. Whenever you find out anything about a diet, so whether it's autoimmune paleo, whether it's keto, whether it's fasting, there's a wonderful place called PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, and it's where you can access all the published studies. And it, it, they do a great job of just summarizing them in very abstract, simple form. Be your own advocate for your health. You can't just trust what every guru says. And that's what I love so much about you know, Wellness Mama is everything you do is so backed up too. It's, it's great. Um, the next thing is, and, and looped in with that, by the way, I mean, I've got a huge YouTube following with over 600 videos all about every health topic. So if there's ever an encyclopedia of videos that you need to learn about something, you can always go there. So that's the best place to really start. Then the other thing that I really want you to be able to do is don't be afraid to experiment with yourself. Don't be afraid to experiment with things that might be a little bit different from what the conventional way of thinking that we've been taught is. Um, you know, so if you if you're curious about fasting but you're afraid of it, you never know until you try. And the the data will speak for itself. If you feel better, if your weight changes, then that's what's really going to be what's most important. I love it. And I'll make sure that all those links that you mentioned are in the show notes, including PubMed and your YouTube videos. And I know you've got some great ones on topics that we covered, so I'll try to link specifically to those as well. Um, but thank you so much for your time and being here. This was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. And I know everybody listening did too. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I will see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.